I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Smart Peace, a mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Peaceful change is political. It involves negotiation and agreement. Supporting peaceful change processes means using networks strategically to engage people in dialogue. People with power and people without it, and people who want change and people who resist it. As part of the Smart Peace Consortium, Chatham House has been working in recent years to develop new approaches to peace building in three different countries, Central African Republic, Myanmar and Nigeria, which build upon a range of different techniques and expertise in terms of conflict analysis, community dialogue, elite mediation, evaluation and behavioural science. The consortium includes organisations from across the world, including the Asia Foundation, the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, Conciliation Resources, the Behavioural Insights Team at ETH Zurich, and International Crisis Group alongside Chatham House. In this mini-series, I'll be speaking to some of the people involved in the Smart Peace project, which has now come to an end, to find out about the lessons that they learnt from their activities in the three countries, and also to find out a bit more about the drivers of conflict in those regions that we're discussing. In this third and final episode in the series, I'm joined by Adam Burke from the Asia Foundation to talk about the situation in Myanmar. Of course, Myanmar has grabbed headlines this year for uh, the political developments in the country, in particular the military coup that occurred earlier in 2021, and the subsequent crackdown on civil society groups and opposition parties by the army. This has made it very difficult for us to speak to Myanmar actors from the region. Obviously, in an ideal world, we would be able to do this, but it's simply not safe at this time to be uh, having those conversations. Instead, I'm joined by Adam, who has many years of experience working in Myanmar and the wider Southeast Asian region. He calls me down the line from Bangkok in Thailand. And we talk about the longer term history of conflict in Myanmar, the recent-ish developments over the last 10 years that had contributed to this kind of uneasy equilibrium, at least in, in the capital and the surrounding regions, where there was at least some sense of democracy. And also we talk about the attempts that Smart Peace was involved with alongside many other actors to bring the many, many armed groups in Myanmar together to start to talk about peace and to talk about putting aside their differences. For the reasons I touched on earlier, we don't really get into too much depth on the events of this year. We will cover that in separate podcasts. In fact, there is a podcast in the Undercurrents feed already, which does look at the situation in Myanmar in more depth. However, this longer term perspective really is fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so now I'm joined by Adam Burke from the Asia Foundation. Adam, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, pleased to join you. It's great to have you with us for this conversation on the situation in Myanmar and the work that uh, Smart Peace has been doing in the country. Just before we get into what the project itself has been working on, I I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the recent history of, of conflict in Myanmar. Our listeners are probably aware of the events of this year and and the upheaval there, but that's just really the latest chapter of uh, a long 
sort of history of disruption in the country. So could you maybe tell us a bit about that longer historical context? So if you go back, uh, not least to when it was known as Burma all around, um, before the name was shifted to Myanmar, the, the conflict has really deep roots. Even when it was, or before it was taken over by, by the British as, as a colony, there was some degree of a divide between the centre of the country, which was more ethnically Burma, and the the rest tend to be the, the, the all the way around the fringes, more or less, um, where there, there was a greater prevalence of ethnic minorities. And it's, that tension is part of the reason, but by no means the whole reason. And there's absolutely no inevitability behind there being conflict between these groups had things worked out differently. Most countries have some kind of a mix that they have to find a way to manage and balance, and Myanmar, Burma has, has never managed to do that. And the reasons why lie in how, how the country's been managed politically, how it's been run. So it, from independence after the Second World War, right from that start, there were frictions emerging between some of the, the groups in the country, sometimes along ethnic lines, sometimes along political lines. So there's a long legacy of it. This is going right back to, to then late 40s. As time went on, some of these conflicts solidified very clearly along these ethnic lines. Others were around uh, communism, an attempt to push a, a, a communist insurrection, and then uh, countermeasures with, with armed groups on both sides. Uh, again, particularly affecting some of the minority, often more upland, remoter parts of the country, but not only. And I think that that's also something that's quite important to remember looking back on what's often now known as Myanmar's ethnic conflicts or, or subnational minority conflicts. And I'm talking about Karen, Kachin, Shan, people run through these names. Some of these groups going, going way back 60, 70 years were involved in active conflict right on the edge of Rangoon, uh, the, the capital. So even right near where the current airport is, just on the outskirts, not even the outskirts anymore, it's within the city that there, there was serious armed conflict back at that stage. So it wasn't just up in the hills and, and, and the, the struggle over how the whole country was managed related to all of it. As time went on, you had military takeover from 1962 on and this semi-socialist, slightly weird isolationist government came in, nay win, and, and ruled the place through till the late 1980s. Uh, there was then massive street protests. That's when Aung San Suu Kyi rose to prominence as the, the key icon, the figurehead of these protests. The, those protests were, as has happened so often in Myanmar, violently suppressed, but it did then lead on to a period of reforms. And right back from that time, so from the early 90s on, you saw the central government trying to find ways to, to adapt how it was ruling the country but not to embrace the demands of neither the ethnic groups and their ethnic armies that had been established over the years, nor of protesters in the center. Uh, none of these groups were, there was no reconciliation process or no middle road that was carved out, but there were concessions and attempts to reform. That carried on over the years. It started with economic reforms, more liberalization, and then it moved on to political reforms from around 2008 on and 2011. Um, and you, you saw the, the election in 2015 when Aung San Suu Kyi actually rose to, to power at the same time as a, what was called a nationwide ceasefire agreement was started up with many of these ethnic armed groups. So you saw hand in hand new leadership, the, the democratic 
leadership taking over nationally and a reconciliation process looking like it would start up through these ceasefires with some of these armed groups. It's about this time that Smart Peace started up, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But that was a period of great hope and uh, opportunity as well, actually, because that's when Smart Peace started up, by pure coincidence, because it was not a, a Myanmar-specific programme that, that really shaped how we tried to take things forward. From there, moving on, uh, things have gone downhill, frankly, as, as people know, especially this year with uh, the military takeover and uh, a shift very rapidly back to serious problems across the entire country. Yeah, thank you so much for that overview. I just wonder, going back a little bit to the different armed groups that you described, often tied to different ethnic groups around, around Myanmar, what primarily were the demands of these groups? Were, were they seeking to carve out power or influence in their sort of local area? Or, or was it really about sort of regime change for the entire state? Or was it about breaking away from the state? What, what were they looking to achieve? It's a mixture. One of the key aims of some of the groups is for reform at the national level, to move towards a more federal system, a more devolved system, so that they would have some authority within their area. Not that dissimilar to the way that within Germany you have devolved areas that have a lot of authority, or even within the United Kingdom, you have Scotland and Wales, it's been a big process of devolution here, or states within the US. So these these common processes you see in many countries within what, what was an extraordinarily centralised system and one where the centre was dominated by the military as well. So some of those demands for devolving power and also for democracy and reform affect the whole country. Some of the groups, for instance, the the KNU, Karen National Union, particularly pushed that. Others were really not so interested in, in trying to reform the whole country, but just wanted to reform their area and focus more on that. Now, within, within their areas, again, that there's a a range of groups as always happens with armed conflicts when they go on for years you get some of the worst actors who rise to the top it's not an environment that fosters great inspirational peace builders and leaders very often you tend to find it's the the strong men and i mean men who, who tend to rise to the top sadly so in some cases the interests were were around power authority and and money as well so the if you look at a, a divide between whether people are interested in solving problems and redressing imbalances or improving the country, or whether they're interested in, in greed for their own interests and power, in some of these cases, it was a bit of a mixture, as you would expect to see. You mentioned the nationwide ceasefire agreement that some of these groups bought into. What were the drivers behind that? What changed that meant that some of these groups were more willing to sort of engage with the peace process? That's a great question. The main difference was the government, I think, rather than these groups, in that there had been quite significant reforms and they were taking on a more progressive stance, which generated more common ground. But again, you can be, and I think many people were at that time, too optimistic about where this programme was leading, People were looking for a a success, not least Barack Obama was looking for a success, actually, a big foreign policy success, and many other countries were too. And there was a geopolitical game going on here as well. One of the reasons that the leaders, the military leaders of Myanmar were pushing reforms was that they wanted to open up more so that they could balance other interests against China's interests. And they felt that they were being overly dominated by China. And they they will resist domination from any single force, whether, whether it's that one or others. And so opening up to the West and to other Asian countries put them in a, a, a better position to, to find a balance there. 
So you saw this increasing openness, but again, you can take that a bit too far. Many of these groups, I think, were, they had already signed what they called bilateral ceasefires. So they had ceasefire agreements in place already. And uh, the government went through a big negotiation process to get them to sign up to a nationwide ceasefire agreement, not a peace agreement, just a ceasefire. Uh, and so for, for a fair number of them, you know, okay, if this gels us together more, so we've got more coherence across these disparate armed groups, that, that's a good thing. The government has in the past divided and ruled frequently. And if we had bilateral agreements already, then all right, if, if they want us to make a nationwide agreement, why not? So that there was probably a little more ambivalence than was sometimes made out from both within the country and externally. And then, of course, a lot of the bigger groups didn't sign anyway. Some of them carried on in a, a state of armed conflict and violence. Um, some of them already had a bilateral agreement of some sort and were quite happy just to keep that. Didn't particularly want to be part of a big nationwide agreement. And especially some of the, the really big groups in areas in northern Shan State, Kachin, so those are the areas near the, the north of the country, nearer China, are the ones with the biggest standing armies, the biggest might in military terms, and sometimes in financial terms too, uh, didn't sign. So it was, if you look at it in terms of the sheer number of anti-state soldiers who were involved, under half of them actually signed the nationwide ceasefire agreement, or their leaders did, rather. In these sorts of protracted conflict situations, the impacts on civilian communities are obviously always tremendously difficult and appalling. But I wonder whether you could just give us a bit of a sense of how people in Myanmar were affected by these conflicts and and whether as well the extent to which the government was able to exert any kind of control in terms of providing infrastructure or public goods in some of these sort of further flung parts of the country. What's it been like to be a a civilian in in Myanmar as these conflicts have gone on? There's a huge range of violence and other problems that the conflict has created in Myanmar. At its most extreme end, you've seen the way in which so many Rohingya, Muslim Rohingya in the far west of the country, uh, fled the fear of their lives into Bangladesh several years ago. And that was a slightly separate conflict. This isn't the main ethnic conflicts which I was talking about before, but the way in which the military behaved was based on their past practices. So people in the past talked about the the four cuts, and this was cutting local populations off from um, revenues, it was cutting armed groups off from access to support and so on. And it, was, um, and it wasn't quite a scorched earth policy, but it was a clear attempt to separate communities from armed groups and therefore undermine these armed groups, and to an extent to punish communities for being anywhere near these armed groups. So a lot of people were, were terrified. This had happened repeatedly in some areas. If you take parts of Karen State, which is in between Thailand and Myanmar, it's actually not very far from the, the capital, Naputor. It's not that far from Yangon. So it's, I mean, it, it's very hilly. It's very beautiful, in fact, very forested. Um, but it's not really terribly remote until you get to the last few miles. Uh, people have had to move homes often. They often couldn't get people into school. There are a lot of people who were in either internal camps or were refugees across the border in Thailand, who, again, weren't internationally recognised as refugees quite often. So that people were in very, very difficult situations and being forced to lead really adaptive and often very intelligent and resourceful lives to cope with severe adversity around them. 
Now, the, particularly in some of these areas, this nationwide ceasefire agreement did actually bring significant peace to areas that had previously been extremely heavily affected by, by conflict for decades. One area I went to a few years ago called Tandongji in a part of Karen State, where the locals mostly farm cardamom, which is a root crop, a bit like ginger, and they farm it up in the hills underneath forests. It, it's a, a stunning place with wisps of cloud in the morning and so on and so forth. Uh, but the roads have been absolutely terrible. There have been zero investment in roads. People hadn't been allowed even to purchase even a motorbike. The electricity was often not provided. So they were living very challenging lives. They had to pay significant informal taxes, either to one armed group or another armed group, the, the, often the military or, or the, the ethnic armed group in the area. And that cut into their livelihoods. It was very hard to get goods to market, as well as problems with schools and education and so on. So they were, they were in a really challenging situation. And with the peace process, they got a lot of their mobility back. They were able to move. Um, there was more investment coming in, both from foreign aid projects and from private sector investment and, and by the, the Myanmar government as well, significantly, which enabled them to, to really, really improve their standards of living in, in actually a very short period of time. So you started to see the dividends pretty rapidly in, in some places. The next point I'd like to kind of raise, I guess, is, is the Smart Peace project itself that, that you've been involved with. And I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about the particular interventions that the project was trying to make within these sort of wider peace processes. What, what were you setting out to do and, and what value were you hoping to bring? Smart Peace started up soon after this nationwide ceasefire agreement was, was, was kicking in on the ground, actually, just as these kinds of benefits were being reaped by, by some people, while others still very much not as a mixed picture. So it was a period of quite significant optimism, and, and I think sometimes slightly unrealistic expectations of what might happen, given the, the way these conflicts had lasted for so long, and the way that this, this was only a ceasefire agreement, it wasn't a full peace agreement. So when we started up, we, we were looking at what we could do fundamentally at a, at a national level. It, they did, when there were these national processes going on, there didn't seem to be much sense to focus on one particular zone or one particular district, given that the problem was clearly nationwide and the solution was also going to be nationwide. And that's an approach that was, was taken by all of the Smart Peace partners. There were several of us, the Asia Foundation, who, who I've been working for, one or two others who were either engaged on the ground or coming in from outside with, with specific skills to do with monitoring and evaluation, especially the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue was the other one that had a presence on the ground as well. And, and in all of these cases, we, we were primarily looking nationally because that seemed to be the way you could come in and make a difference. And then within that, working out how as NGOs, so we're not governmental and we have to respect the remits that governments let us work within, where we can operate effectively and what difference we can make. And within the, the skill sets and the, the areas of access that we have, we considered and built certain fields of, of action for the Asia Foundation. It was particularly around this, this effort to look at what decentralization might be possible within a longer and deeper peace process. People at the time were talking about federalism, and it became an accepted word on all sides for a while. That, that didn't last, to be honest, and it turned out that actually what people meant by federalism was very, very different. So there might have been agreement on a word, but a word with nothing underneath it doesn't really get you very far. 
So it was a, a bit of a, a false impression of, of progress. Although it, it did have some entry points and it enabled discussion, debate, building understanding in, in areas where people had been very much isolated and cut off from international thinking. So what we were trying to do is raise awareness and understanding of what these kinds of changes might look like in practice. It's fine to throw around words in, in manifestos or on a stage, but how would you actually take that forward if you were serious about it? What would this kind of change look like? If you've managed to get a ceasefire, guns are put away, at least temporarily, even if they're still there, what are the, what are the next steps? How would you take this process forward? And if you're going to have a serious dialogue, then people need to know what they're talking about. They need to be able to come to the table and put down sensible, thought-through plans for how you would manage budgets at the local level. For example, how you, how you would run schools at the local level, rather than everyone being appointed from the capital. How, how you would have some kind of political process at the local level that, that was accountable, democratic, potentially. There are other ways of doing things as well, but it would lead to some devolution of authority and be measured so that it wouldn't then just be taken over by the local power interests in, in a way that might be still more counterproductive. And such problems have happened in these processes elsewhere. So we were trying to set up forums to discuss this, to debate this, to build ideas and how to take that forward. Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, we're looking at similar ideas actually within their areas of, of expertise as well, which is more to do with dialogue and, and negotiation and interchange between different parties, which again is an absolutely critical part of this. So these were some of the admittedly slightly abstract ideas we were trying to take forward, but I've been trying to explain how they really related to the concrete reality of, of Myanmar at the time and in practice were beginning to lead to really concrete activities. It would be helpful as well if you could explain it maybe a little bit more about the kind of how your approach differed to sort of previous approaches and what you think that brought to the things that you were trying to do. One of the, the great assets of, of this programme of Smart Peace is that it's tried to be flexible. They use the word adaptive, but that's really the same. And it, it was trying to work in a, an environment that was changing very rapidly. It was shifting from a, a position where there was a lot of suspicion, a lot of mistrust, in some fields relatively low levels of, of knowledge, or at least shared knowledge that people could discuss openly between them. People just had very different pictures, different images of what to an outsider might look like the same thing. And so as a, as a basis for dialogue, that, that's problematic. Within that, if you're going to start moving forward, especially very difficult political terrain to negotiate, you need to be quite, quite flexible. You need to try and experiment. You need to set things up. And if they don't work, you have to shift. If the context within which you're working changes because the, the, this incremental process isn't moving forward as you'd expected or it takes a different direction, again, you need to shift. Or simply in really practical terms, Sometimes individual activities just don't quite come off as you'd expected. It, it, it's a fairly high-risk enterprise, what we're trying to take forward, and, and often it doesn't quite work as you'd hope. So you have to learn from your successes and change. Now, that can be very, very different when, difficult rather, when NGOs, organisations have to set really concrete project plans up right from the start. And some of these plans are based on the, the kind of approach that might work for engineering, but wouldn't, doesn't, don't work very well for difficult, complex, politically tricky processes. And, and with SmartPiece, we brought to the table a range of tools that really tried to help us be flexible with the planning while being quite systematic about how we were analysing the context and taking things forward. Let, let me try and give a few examples. 
So first, if you want to be flexible, you need to know what's going on so that you're shifting in the right direction. And by, by having a, a consortium that involved Chatham House and also involved ICG, International Crisis Group, we, we were able to tap into expertise with International Crisis Group in-country expertise at a very high level too, to, to break down some of these challenges and issues and enable us to understand exactly what was changing and where the access or entry points might be. So even right from the start and then as things shifted, we were getting the info coming in. Without the intelligence, it, it's very hard to know how you should be changing, whether what you're seeing is really indicative of, of a broader picture or whether it's just your own little problem in your own area. Then with that, we had a range of planning tools. This gets a little bit technical, a little bit geeky, if you like, with names like strategy testing or peer review. And these are all mechanisms that, were, that are designed to try and help you reflect on what's working and what isn't working. It's a form of monitoring, really but one that, that's very much taking a step back and not just ticking boxes as to whether you've achieved activities or counting numbers of recipients who've received aid packages, but rather having a, a sensible look at the bigger picture from a very informed position. And by bringing these tools to the table, we were able to adapt our activities and, and shift over time. For example, with our federalism work, and this, this isn't a very positive story, in many ways, while we had good mechanisms up and running, what they were showing is that the terrain was becoming harder and it, it was becoming more challenging to generate common ground. So one change that we made was to stop the idea of setting up forums between the main parties to the ceasefire because there simply wasn't enough common ground to, to negotiate and discuss and we may not have had the political space to do it, i.e. it would have been shut down at, at the ultimate. So. We concentrated on, on one side. We concentrated particularly on the ethnic side, but not with directly with armed groups, more with interlocutors, with people who were civilian and who were in a very good position to act as brokers or to take positions forward to the table. And the idea there was clearly to start building and making progress in a difficult situation to build their knowledge and understanding so that that gap was slowly bridged over time. One of the themes that's kind of come up in all three of these conversations that I've had for the Smart Peace series has been this idea of inclusivity as being part of the way you've approached these projects. And we heard in from our colleagues in Nigeria and Central African Republic how part of what they were trying to do was engage with you know constituencies of young people, women, often marginalised ethnic groups within these contexts to try and bring them to the table as well. I just wondered, is that something that was possible to do in the Myanmar context? You already had that mention of how uh, uh, this sort of political landscape is very much dominated by strong men <laughs> in these, uh, particularly in these armed groups. But, but was that something that you sort of bore in mind as you were doing this? Was inclusivity an angle that, that you wanted to pay more attention to? We, we very much did. And we thought quite hard about, about how to take that forward. There are obviously many different angles and dimensions to inclusion, whether you're talking about economic marginalization, whether you're talking about particularly in, in, in Myanmar, as in many countries, about ethnic divides, and whether you're talking about gender, if it's to, to do with women's engagement on an equal footing. Look, there's no, there's no simple solution. These are entrenched problems. And many different organizations within the peace process try to address this in a variety of ways. The, the risk is that you end up with tokenism that can be counterproductive. You, you, you have a representative who is supposed, well, it's not a representative, to be honest, it's a person 
uh, to an individual um, who is supposed to represent a particular group, and that, that can actually be quite damaging. If, well, they don't actually represent that group, they're just a person, right? So you're assuming a level of authority that they may not have. You, you can also generate a situation where people are put forward as representatives or even as individuals in order to get a more equal set of, of people. So, so you want to ensure that women are around the negotiating table. If you push that too far the, and it's not accepted or coming from the people who are meant to be the main leaders of the negotiation, they'll set up a parallel negotiation and do it there instead because it's not what they wanted. So as, as an external, there's only so far you can take it if you're trying to push things too far, too fast. And you, you have instead to work incrementally and work in a way that that is relevant to and going to fit in with the environment and, and very much not disregard it as too difficult and not do it at all. So when it comes around to our work, we were looking quite carefully at who the people were who we were trying to reach out and train, what their networks were, both in, in terms of ensuring that significant women who were able to contribute and bring messages back to their communities were relevant, were, were not just involved, but were active and actively engaged, both so that they're receiving the support in terms of training and facilitation, and, and also in terms of taking part in actually designing what might happen and how it can be taken forward. HD were trying to operate similarly, uh, and we were both really just attempting to set things up to begin things in motion, take into account issues of inclusion along many different facets at a time when there was shrinking space. So it, it was really challenging. This is what our analysis, uh, our peer reviews, and then our flexibility or adaption to the context was filtering through to us that it was actually becoming harder and harder to operate. And when we started to think through how we could take it forward and what we could do in future, the, the space to do it was, was becoming increasingly restricted. And with hindsight, all of these were indications and signals that the, the broader political system was, was going awry, as you very much saw this year. I'm conscious we don't want to talk too much about the specific events of, of this year. Uh, that's a topic for another day. But um, I wondered just at the end of this conversation whether you could reflect a bit on what you think in terms of the lessons that policymakers should be taking away from the work that you've been doing on Smart Peace, um, whether focused on Myanmar or sort of internationally, whether there are sort of principles for peace building that you think have really been borne out by the work that you've been doing? There are many. Unfortunately, some of the principles for peace building are actually quite contradictory as well. It's a challenge to pick your way through them. And if you tried to do all of them, you'd run around in circles. But many of them are extremely important and very valid. And, and I think the, the dominant one is that peace is rarely imposed from outside. Um, and this is what you've seen again and again. External actors are fundamental, both in terms of offering support and in terms of building legitimacy for, for peace processes and sometimes for facilitating or mediating peace processes. But if you don't have the essential, both underpinning or groundswell of wider backing within a country and, and even more significantly still the, the commitment of, of leaders within that country to take a process forward, it's almost certainly not, not going to come off. That, that underpinned, I think, what we were all trying to achieve here. So we were not attempting to set externally devised targets of what the peace process should look like or 
even what something like federalism should look like. We were trying to build capacities to engage and define it and agree on it effectively. And also to make that agreement more inclusive so that a greater number of voices were taking part in it. The logic being that it's stronger if it's got more weight beneath and it's going to be more relevant to what a country needs and and it's going to support the needs and interests of people within that country more if there's more of an involved and inclusive process. So there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that such processes, such approaches where viable, do make peace processes work better. Absolutely. Well, I hope some of those principles and this approach can be taken forward in in future scenarios. Um, Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Smart Peace. Thank you very much for listening all the way through to the end. If you liked what you've heard, I would really appreciate it if you could tell your friends, tell your family, tell your colleagues if you think they would be interested in this work. And if you could also like and subscribe to the Undercurrents podcast feed wherever you're listening to this, that would be massively appreciated. If you want to find out more about Smart Peace, the first thing I'd say is listen to the other two episodes in this series, which will be available wherever you're listening to this. You should also check out the websites of the respective organisations involved. The Smart Peace project itself has now come to an end, but I hope that this series in particular, along with other written outputs, really give you a sense of the lessons that we can learn from this. And the organisations involved are all, of course, continuing to engage in the processes that they were part of in the countries that we've covered this week. In particular, if you want to find out more about Chatham House's work in this area, then I would suggest following the Chatham House International Security Programme on Twitter at Chatham House ISR and also checking out our website www.chathamhouse.org. If you're new to this podcast through this mini-series, then welcome. We have uh, 130-odd other episodes that you can check out. would heartily recommend some of our recent ones from this year in particular. And I'm very, very delighted that you've, that you've found us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new episodes for you. And in the meantime, thank you very much for joining me.